Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Well, as a show that focuses on happiness and well-being, once in a while we circle back to our roots and talk purely about happiness and joy. And I am delighted to be doing so today with Douglas Abrams. He is an author, editor, and literary agent. He is the founder and president of Idea Architects, a creative book and media agency helping visionaries to create a wiser, healthier, and more just world. Doug has worked with Desmond Tutu as his co-writer and editor for over a decade, and before founding his own literary agency, he was a senior editor at HarperCollins and also served for nine years as the religious editor at the University of California Press. And he is the co-author of several books, but the ones we're talking about today are The Book of Joy, that was written by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and of course, Doug Abrams himself, and a new compendium, I think I'd like to call it, entitled The Book of Joy Journal, a 365-day companion, also written by the trio of gentlemen. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining us on the show. It's great to be here with you. It was a very long-winded intro, but we're, but we're now getting into joy in a time of such uncertainty, certainly in America. We have been really tested in the past year. That's really true. And I think that um, it was interesting when we were, were working on the Book of Joy, this, we, the scientists explained to us that we really have four fundamental human emotions. We have fear, we have anger, we have sadness, and we have joy. And so a lot of us, I think, these days have been spending a lot of time in fear, anger, and sadness um, as our political climate and the crises and natural disasters and human-made disasters are so much in our consciousness. Um, and I think that 
the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu were not in any way saying that those other emotions are to be denigrated or to not be honored because they evolved for reasons to help us. Uh, but in fact, our birthright is joy, and it doesn't mean that we need to live in those other emotions. We can actually learn to traverse them more easily and return to our natural state of joy. I agree. And I also believe that fear, anger, and sadness can be great teachers, you know, by by uh, uh, pointing out the contrast. The contrast heightens the awareness. So if you go through something that is difficult and triggers those negative emotions, and I'm doing air quotes as I say that, that when you reap or experience those beautiful moments of joy, they become extra special. Right. It's true. I mean, it's interesting. We received about a thousand questions in three days from around the world when we were going to Dharamsala, India, to, uh, for this week of dialogues with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu that became the Book of Joy. And the question that most people wanted to ask actually was not how do I experience more joy in my own life, but how can I live, experience joy in a world so filled with suffering? So I think your question that started the, the conversation about the challenges that we face in our world right now and in our, in our culture and such are, are so uh, deeply impacting uh, individuals. And I, I think it's actually a, a wonderful reminder of our deep interrelatedness and uh, that, you know, when others are suffering, it's not separate from us. It's not, you know, it deeply impacts us. And when others are suffering, some of us might feel that we are impotent or powerless to impact the suffering of another that might be a world away. And I know the Dalai Lama and um, uh, Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop, really believe that you you act locally, and that in turn begins to impact or have a ripple effect globally. Well, I think it's uh, it's a couple different levels, and I think you alluded to this in your introduction, which is that it's not selfish to actually aspire to your own well-being, happiness, and joy, um, and that your joy actually can be a kind of a um, ripple out to others, both lo- locally and actually, but that we do have a kind of global concern as they have. And I think, frankly, why they're so beloved is because their concern has not been just for their nations or for their religions, but for humanity as a whole. And I think that that, you know, our own experience and, uh, you know, when we resolve and address our own pain, we're actually able to be more effective in dealing with the pain of others and the suffering that exists in our world. I agree. And also, when you look at the history, the lives of these two men, His Holiness and the Archbishop, they each have faced some extreme challenges and have risen above their adversity to not only thrive and flourish as individuals, but to thrive and flourish and contribute to the well-being of others. And maybe that is the point of this happiness business. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think they, they certainly, I mean, the book was meant to be an exploration of how do we experience joy in the face of adversity, in the face of the real challenges that we experience. It wasn't 
as you said, that annoying smiley face. It's not about, <laughs> you know, don't worry, be happy. Um, it's really about how do we face the reality of our lives uh, and the reality of our world and find greater joy, contentment, equanimity, um, and effectiveness and compassion in the in that reality and i think what's you know the, many people ask how this project began and um the idea for the book of joy actually began at archbishop tutu's wife's birthday party in south africa i as you mentioned i've had the privilege of working with archbishop tutu for over a decade on uh his book projects and we were down there for his wife's birthday uh, with uh, the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation and uh, a man named Jim Doty, who's a neurosurgeon, who said to me, well, what do you think about the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu doing a book together? And I said, wow, that sounds like a fantastic idea. What would it be about? And we both paused for a moment, and then we said, joy, because these are two of the most extraordinarily joyful people on the planet, despite all the suffering that they've experienced in their lives personally or in their nations, 50 years in exile, and a racist apartheid state for decades, um, and for most of Archbishop Tutu's life. Um, and so that's what we were really in it to understand was how do these, these people, these men who have faced such adversity, are they capable of this joy? So we were actually at Archbishop Tutu's uh, office uh, when Jim asked me this question. And so through a mouthful of sandwiches, I turned to Archbishop Tutu, or Arch, as he's called by his friends, and I said, hey, Arch, you want to do a book with the Dalai Lama? And he said, I would do anything with that man. And so <laughs> he wrote to, Archbishop, uh, to the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama said he'd love to do the book, invited us to come to Dharamsala, India. And we had this extraordinary uh, and really historic opportunity to spend a week together in the Dar Dalai Lama's private residence talking about, you know, the deepest questions of human nature and human experience. And what was so, and we got to have the Dalai Lama teach us to meditate. We got to watch him dance for the first time in his life. Uh, we threw a birthday party for him. It was a really an extraordinary experience that is all kind of, described in the Book of Joy, and, and the goal in the Book of Joy was to let everyone go on this journey, to really have this direct, immediate experience of what it was like being there and in this kind of ex really extraordinary dialogue and, uh, and experience. And so it was really such a, a profound opportunity to to have each of them not only share their teachings and their inspiring ideas, but to actually share their humanity and their sense yeah. of humor. I mean, the amazing thing, as you know from reading the book, is that um, these two men are hysterically funny. They're like as much a comedy duo as they are these two revered holy men, and they're just constantly making jokes and teasing each other, and uh, they're just these extraordinarily wonderful friends that show us what the depth of joy of friendship. We are going to need to take a break and we are going to continue to explore the holiness of happiness with Doug Abrams, who is one of the co-authors of 
two really cool books. One is The Book of Joy, which he co-authored with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, as well as The Book of Joy Journal, a 365-day companion. We are going to come back, but before we do, I want to tell you where you can find Doug Abrams. You can connect with him at ideaarchitects.com, on Twitter at Douglas Abrams, and on Facebook, The Idea Architects. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we are talking about the holiness of happiness and the books of joy, both the Book of Joy Journal and the original Book of Joy that were authored by the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and Douglas Abrams. And I have Doug Abrams in the house. So, Doug, prior to the break, we were talking about the simplicity of happiness that um, His Holiness and the Archbishop exemplify. I mean, they they get pretty happy over simple, beautiful things, don't they? Well, it's true. And, And one of the interesting conversations that we have, so the book is divided into three parts. The first part is the nature of true joy, and then the second part is the obstacles to joy, and the third is the eight pillars of joy. And in our discussion about the nature of true joy, we were talking about, you know, how does joy differ from happiness? How does joy differ from pleasure? Um, and, you know, so many of us experience joy as, you know, when we're having a nice slice of chocolate cake or listening to a good song, but then it's gone. Um, Or somebody says something nice to us, we have some joy, and then, uh, you know, we're on to the rest of our busy lives. And it's like joy is a fleeting emotional state. And what we wanted to understand was how do we actually turn that from a fleeting emotional state into an enduring, lasting character trait, because that's what these two men have. And they made this interesting distinction between what the Dalai Lama calls physical happiness, which is that chocolate cake or the song, and mental happiness, which is this more enduring, lasting happiness. So I I did ask him then, okay, so have you renounced the physical happiness, the the kind of pleasure, if you will, and um, to 
my delight, he, he it was clear that he had not, and most evidenced <laughs> by uh, the fact that when we were sitting together at lunch, and uh, the whole time he and Archbishop Tutu are holding forth, as Dalai Lamas and archbishops do, and he kept saying, you know, this is my second, you know, I only get two meals a day, and this is my second meal, so you have to talk so I can eat. <laughs> and then at the dessert, they served this amazing bowl of uh, Tibetan rice pudding, and he held out this bowl of Tibetan rice pudding to me with this big smile on his face, and he said, I love this. And it was just such a fantastic reminder that in the pursuit of holiness, we do not have to denounce or denigrate the pleasures and, and joys of life with the recognition that those inevitably are not going to sustain our joy and our happiness in the same way that values like relationship, which they were so adamant was central to our real lasting joy and compassion and generosity. The Dalai Lama actually said that compassion is so important to a sustained experience of joy that if you do a compassion meditation in the morning, you'll have 24 hours of happiness. And I said, even before coffee? And he said, <laughs> yes, even before coffee. But I have to tell you, I don't think the Dalai Lama is a big coffee drinker. So you have to see, I'm not a, a, totally convinced about that. But um, it really is clear that both of these men feel that uh, compassion is enormously important for um, this, this, this kind of sustained sense of well-being and joy and happiness, what, um, which was you know, interesting because in the second part of the book, we looked at the obstacles to joy, everything from stress and anxiety and frustration all the way to illness and fear of death. And then in the third part, we talked about these uh, eight pillars of joy that they identified, which are those things that really, what they said was you can't actually rush, you know, race after joy and happiness. You can't actually even pursue happiness. Uh, You actually, as they said, if you run after joy and happiness, it's the fastest way of missing the bus. And what actually you need to do is cultivate these eight pillars of joy and when you do, then the joy and happiness is just a natural byproduct of that experience. Yeah, but the, that the joy is is not the destination. It's kind of the the reward, the benefit that comes along from practicing these other actions, because those exactly. are actions. These things that you descri- you describe, exactly. perspective, think- humility, acceptance. Exactly. They're, they are, you know, actions and qualities of human life, values that we can cultivate in our life. One of the things I think that's worth saying, um, since we're obviously talking on the publication of the Book of Joy journal, is that the journal was inspired because we were, I mean, the book has it been embraced all around the world in this quite wonderful way that we had hoped, because we really wanted to make a kind of birthday gift on the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday for the world. And it's really been embraced all over the world. Uh, it's, I think, now in 30 countries, and it's been a bestseller all, all around the world. But what was what's most exciting, I think, frankly, for us is not just the number of people it's touching, but how deeply it's impacting them. And we were hearing from readers that the book was helping them deal with their illnesses, their chronic pain. It was even stopping readers from committing suicide. Uh, Readers were giving it as they're on their deathbed to their family and friends as their parting gift. 
Um, and so we really wanted to give people an opportunity to reflect on what they were learning because it's clear that they were having such a deep engagement with the ideas and stories uh, and science in the Book of Joy. And so the Book of Joy journal allows readers to really reflect on what they're learning and to incorporate it into their own life in very simple ways. I mean, it's as you said, it's a 365-day journal. And one of the things that uh, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu shared with us was their own joy practices. So at the end of the book, there's 50 pages of their daily meditation and prayer practices that they use. And one of the very simple ones is just having setting one's intention in the morning and then at the end of the day reflecting on whether one has met that intention that one set for the day. And that's the kind of thing that's a perfect thing to kind of journal on each day as you're reflecting on your own journey to joy. And in in reading through the Book of Joy journal, there's plenty of space for those daily reflections, and there are also lots of incredible quotes by these men, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, that are that are certainly provocative, I think, to it to start as a prompt. You know, mm-hmm. what what will you give to your day? How will you, how will you use this inspiration to go out and make a difference to to um, help your own life and and touch touch that of another? Right, exactly. Um, I, and I think those quotes are meant to do exactly that, to kind of inspire the, uh, the reader to reflect on them and explore them for themselves. Um, I think, you know, this is a, it is a practice, you know, joy and um, the, the practices that these men didn't become these men by, um, you know, kind of overnight. Um, and as Archbishop Tutu says, we are masterpieces in the making. You know, we are meant for perfection, but we are not yet perfect. And, you know, the Dalai Lama said, you know, yeah, I'm a student every day. I'm learning, learning. And Archbishop Tutu teased him and said, yes, you are wonderful. <laughs> you know, and the Dalai Lama <laughs> responded, I expect a comment like that from you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but they were... You know, and they, but they really were sincerely sharing of their own challenges and struggle. You know, Archbishop Tutu said, you know, you look at the Dalai Lama, he looks so serene, so, you know, so peaceful. So, uh, but there was a time when he would go, you know, and the Dalai Lama would say, you know, he would talk about how when his planes would be delayed and he'd get aggravated and frustrated. Um, And, you know, they just were, or when he was about to give a talk and he'd be nervous and they just were so, I mean, one of the things I think that's so, uh, was so incredible about this week together and what we were able to share with the world in the Book of Joy is that. It's not just these two revered spiritual leaders kind of on this mountaintop um, sharing, you know, the kind of these abstract ideas about joy and happiness. They really got into sharing their own stories and their own experience, the the kind of own heartbreak and heartache uh, in a way that um, is so engaging to read. And, you know, we knew the book was going to be inspiring, but one of the things that's been so um, incredibly gratifying has been how entertaining people find reading it. Um, they say, you know, they're laughing and crying their way through the book, and that's really a testament to the, the you know, the honesty and the candor that these two men shared their lives with us. 
We are nearly out of time, unfortunately, but I would love for you to share with our audience maybe two or three of the most basic joy tips that these men shared with you and, and that are in the book. So people are inspired, if they haven't already got the book in their possession, that they will run out and buy the Book of Joy and the Book of Joy journal. Well, I think there were three um, core insights or three of the core insights around joy that they shared with us was that uh, first and foremost, why this is not about that annoying smiley face is that they uh, expressed very profoundly and very deeply and very adamantly that joy and sorrow are inevitably interconnected and that you really can't have one without the other. You can either you know, turn down the volume on the sorrow or the suffering in your life, but then you also turn down the joy, or you can turn up the volume on both, and and you will laugh more, but you will also cry more. So that was uh, a very profound uh, insight. They also taught us that joy is a choice, that even in those moments of great anguish and uh, fear and suffering in our own lives and in our world, Uh, We can choose joy. We can bring joy. There's an incredible story about Archbishop Tutu in a refugee camp, you know, beginning to sing and dance um, in a way that brought even these very despairing people into song and into dance. And then um, finally, that our greatest joy and the fastest way to experience more joy in your life is actually to bring joy to others. I'm going to say amen to that. (laughs) We have uh, had a a, a great visit. Thank you for sharing the holiness of happiness. That is what I'm going to refer to this to this show as. Um, To learn more about Doug Doug Abrams and his work, please visit IdeaArchitects.com. On Twitter, you can find Doug at Douglas Abrams. And on Facebook, The Idea Architects, the books we've been talking about today are The Book of Joy and The Book of Joy Journal by the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and my guest, Douglas Abrams. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much, Lisa. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glasses half empty or half full, The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. 
Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about love as the secret sauce. And so promises author Scott Stabile, who is in the house today to talk about his new book, Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. Scott Stabile is the author of this book, as I mentioned. His inspirational posts and videos have attracted a huge and devoted social media following, including several hundred thousand Facebook fans and growing. He's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. He lives in Michigan and conducts workshops around the world. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Oh, I, well, this is one of my favorite subjects because uh, really love is what makes the world go round. It's the salve that heals all wounds. And I think you are very well qualified to talk about the, how that happens. Well, thank you. I hope so. Talk a little bit about what inspired you to write Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. Well, I've, you know, I started a Facebook writer page about five years ago, a little more than five years ago. And I had, you know, I'd been writing about topics such as kindness and compassion and forgiveness and moving through fears and all of these things that I think uh, are embodied by love, you know, are, are examples of love in action. And the page started to grow and there's been a lot of, um, you know, the, the community there is is really engaged and there's a lot of sharing that's gone on and it's been incredibly positive. Uh, and I and a couple years ago, I self-published a book called Just Love. And it, I, I post a lot of memes on the Facebook page about these topics. And the book a couple years ago was really just, you know, one or two sentence memes paired with photographs. But I knew I wanted to dive deeper and explore these subjects more. And you can do that in a Facebook post. I mean, they can be as long as you want. But typically, I don't write book chapters on Facebook and post them there. So, you know, writing Big Love gave me an opportunity to um, take some of the the posts that really resonated with people and go deeper into them and then just come up with some new ideas as well. Um, because believe it or not, not everyone's on social media. So it's also a way to reach people who might not, um, you know, get in touch with the message through social media. And when we talk about big love, it's really in the context, uh, it's not the kind of Valentine's Day love, you know, it's not no. really that sort of romantic love. What you're talking about is a very deep, ripe, powerful, all-encompassing love of humanity, one another. And I think that's often stems for many of us, the ability to live in that space from the transformation of hardship. Yeah. I mean, when I speak about love, I'm talking about the energy that I see as the base note for everything good in our world. You know, anytime we're acting from a place of kindness, we're acting from love. Anytime we're being compassionate with another human being, that's love. Anytime we choose forgiveness, you know, this is all love in action. And we have opportunities to practice love every day. I mean, and, and especially with ourselves, too. When the, every time we turn on the light in the bathroom and walk in the bathroom and look in the mirror and start berating ourselves and criticizing ourselves, right there is an opportunity, you know, to ask the question, what does love invite me to do in this moment? And certainly the response isn't going to be to look at yourself and say you're too fat or too ugly or too this or too that. It's going to call on us to bring some kindness 
to the moment, even with ourselves. So we can always be practicing love in our day, always be spreading love. And even if we feel we don't have love, we can give love. And in the giving of the love, in the generation of being loving, um, it will come back. It will return to us. It's been my experience. That's been my experience too. And also I see, because I see love as energy, I don't, I don't think love is differentiating between whether we're giving it or receiving it. It's all transference of love. You know, it's all positive. It will all always serve us. You know, even if I'm spending this whole day just giving love, I am serving myself by giving love. Absolutely. And I'm serving the world. And I agree wholeheartedly with you, though, the more we open ourselves up and the more generous we are with the love we have to give, the the more we make ourselves available to receiving as well. Now, somebody would say, might say, well, you know, I when I love like that and I give myself away, I end up being empty and depleted. And what happens if they don't give it back? What happens if... Um, you know, I, 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 my heart gets broken. And, you know, there are people out there who have lived in a state of woundedness that might be less apt to be generous with their hearts. I, I hear you. I think that that's, um, that's a common complaint or a common understanding. But I see that as a misunderstanding, honestly. I don't, for me, the energy of love is pure. It's only when we attach these mind expectations to it you know when we're talking about the energy of love and giving love when we attach an expectation to receive simply by giving that's not really love you know what i mean that's something else like (laughs) there are so many different ways to adulterate love but then it becomes something other than love when we're just practicing love and, I, and I'm not pretending this is an easy thing to do all the time, and I'm certainly not pretending that I'm always in a place of love. You know, I can be a jerk and impatient and all these other things that we can all be. But when I'm operating from that space of love, it is impossible to feel depleted, in my experience, because love doesn't deplete. It's so abundant, and it only just grows and expands. And there, there's, you know, it's it's so vast that we can always call on that energy. Um, so I really think we're we're that's a mind game when we when we're depleted, it's because we have something else going on that isn't entirely loving. I agree. And for those who are listening who think, all right, you two fluffy people talking over <laughs> totally. there about love, <laughs> you little woo wooers. <laughs> Let, let's talk about let's talk about hardcore experience because I I'm, I believe that your story really illustrates what it is that you're saying that you you in your past you have come through some very very difficult circumstances that most of us would agree might render you an unloving person and in fact the opposite has happened to you yeah well i mean i i lost my parents when i was 14 they were shot to death in detroit uh which was obviously an incredibly traumatic experience Um, nine years later, my brother died from a heroin overdose, which was another, it was less traumatic in that he had suffered with his addiction for my entire life. He was 18 years, my senior. So I only knew him through the lens of addiction. And when he died, it was obviously incredibly sad, but not as shocking, um, because he, you know, we knew the life he was living and we knew that that was a risk that could happen with my parents. It was a complete and utter shock to 
lose them both instantly and through such violence. Um, and I don't think I did anything consciously, though, as a teenager in terms of dealing with my parents' death that was connected to love. I think really some sort of subconscious survival mechanism kicked in. And all I did at the time was bury the experience and move on with my life. And I recognized completely I could have gone the route of just saying, you know, screw you, life, screw you, God, screw you, everything. And um, and luckily I and I and I do see it as luck as much as anything um, at the time, because when you're 14 and you're dealing with the loss, I don't think you're making a lot of really conscious decisions. You know, I don't know how much consciousness I had then in terms of determining my life. Um, but I was a good student and, you know, had a lot of friends and just went that route. And once a year would have a good cry about my parents. And then other than that, would just bottle them up and never talk about them and pretend it didn't happen really. And it was only in my twenties, my early twenties, I moved to San Francisco, got a job at this store with this wonderful metaphysical book section. And I started to recognize that though it had served me to create that wall, um, to my grief and to my connection with others, uh, it, it ultimately also created a wall to the deepest possible connection I could have with other people. And so I allowed myself to grieve in a different way. That was at a time when I was also recognizing that I can choose love as the guiding force in my life. I was meeting people who were talking about enlightenment and love and peace and compassion as their objectives when it, up to this point, I was just talking to people who had career objectives, you know, and how much money they were going to make and what job they wanted to do. And I was realizing that I can make my priority. I can build my life around the priority of love. And, and I know it can sound woo-woo, but it's not like I lost sense of getting a job or any of that, you know. And to those who see love as this soft woo-woo in the clouds you know, talk, I would really encourage you to to recognize that love is uh, almost always the harder choice to make. You know, if someone is in your face and screaming at you and angry and telling you you're, you know, a horrible person or whatever else they're telling you, um, how easy is it to go to love in that moment? It's almost impossible. And love, that's, love takes the hardest work always. You know, finding the kindness and compassion in the face of rage and anger and judgment is always the more difficult choice. But it's also always the choice that's ultimately going to serve you and the situation the best and, and our world the best. Um, and I found that, you know, in dealing with the grief of losing my parents and losing my brother, that you have to feel what you're going through and you, you have to allow for your sadness and your rage and whatever else is going on in your life. And it's painful and it's difficult, but if we can still connect to the energy of love as much as possible, it can be a guiding force in that process, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. We are going to go to a break and then we'll continue the conversation with Scott Stabile about his new book, Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. To learn more, please visit www.scottstabile.com, on Twitter at Scott Stabile, on Facebook, Scott Frank Stabile. And for you Instagrammers out there, Scott Stabile. He'll come, here come the tunes. He'll be right back. <laughs> Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. 
We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because caring is sharing. And we're talking about the power and the beauty of love. And when we say that, we don't mean that woo-woo fluffy stuff. We mean that core fuel that is life, that certainly is the, the foundation of a, of a happy life. I'm speaking today with author Scott Stabile, who wrote Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And that was published by New World Library, or is published by New World Library. Make a note, Ben. I'll say that again, and we can we can we can drop that in there. And we're talking with Scott Stabile today about his new book, Big Love: The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart, published by New World Library. So, Scott, I just want to read one endorsement that you have that just jumped out um, at me, and this is by Elizabeth Gilbert, best-selling author of Eat, Pray, Love. She writes, Scott Stabile is a wonderful presence of love, advocacy, warmth, resilience, and grace in our world. I adore and admire everything he creates. So for those of you who love Liz Gilbert's work, she's on it here. (laughs) (laughs) She's on to you. Uh, That was a happy surprise. I'm a huge fan of her work. She's doing amazing work in the world. She is. So let's go back to the story and the story of love and how it relates to happiness. Because in your book, you do uh, challenge us to happiness. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, there's a chapter called the happiness challenge. And I, I wrote that in part because I launched a happiness challenge on my Facebook page about a year and a half ago. And it was what I invited the community there to do was to pick one thing they were going to do every day in the month of February. And I chose February because it's the shortest month. So I knew it would give us the best chance of completing it, (laughs) but it was strategic. But one thing that you would do that stand to serve your happiness. And I chose to do yoga for at least an hour every day that month. And I did it not to suggest, you know, there's a there's this refrain in the the self-help world that happiness is a choice and choose happiness. And there are about a million memes that say that in different ways. 
And I really want to, I really want to make the case that happiness isn't a choice. It's actually a feeling and we can't choose our feelings no matter how hard we, we try. You know, if, if you lose a loved one, you're going to feel sad and you can scream to the heavens. I want to be happy right now, but that's not going to happen for you necessarily. But the point I was trying to make with the happiness challenge was to show that we can make choices that stand to lead to happiness. That's something we can choose in our lives that if we can't, you know, we can't necessarily choose our feelings, but I know that taking walks tends to lead to me feeling better. So if I make a point every day to take a walk outside, there's a good chance that I'm going to invite more happiness into my life. And that's something that we can all be cognizant of. What are those things that we're doing that we tend to do that, that make us smile and then it becomes about not just bringing awareness to those things, but taking the next step, which is acting on them and integrating more of those things into our day-to-day -day life. And it will likely lead to more bouts of happiness. I, I agree with you. I mean, we, we say happiness is an inside job around here, and we do talk about choice. But I agree with how you have phrased you know, the element of choice, because at the end of the day, happiness is a practice. You know, we lose yes. somebody we love. We're not going to be happy. Nobody should expect to be happy. And in fact, it is okay to be miserable. You know, yes. I think it, yes. <laughs> it's, the, it's the contrast that heightens the awareness, right? That if we come, come to life with the expectation that it's always going to be happy where it's a, it's a, it's a setup for failure, in fact. Absolutely. And we, and, and I think that, that on top of, not being happy all the time, you know, because I was this, I always felt like I was spiritually deficient because I'm supposed to be able to choose happiness. And yet I'm finding myself sad, all, you know, often. So not only do I feel sad, I like you said, I feel like I failed because I'm not locked into this key of choosing happiness in every moment. And, and like you said, also, there, there's beauty in the other emotions. You know, if I were happy all the time, I really don't believe I would have the depth of compassion for other people's pain. And I recognize it's because of some of the trauma I've gone to in my life and some of the sadness that I've experienced. It's made me more available to others who, who are going through their own sadness or darkness. You know, and that is a, a profound gift that comes with sadness. If we're willing to see it is the compassion that it invites into our lives. You know, when I'm feeling angry, that is almost always a time when I am recognizing some injustice that I see in the world. My anger usually connects me to that place and I can act on. And what I find like anger is a beautiful starting point. And if I can bring my compassion, if I can bring my love to that anger, that's when I can create the most positive change. Like I do believe like anger doesn't, doesn't ultimately lead to healing. We're not going to heal through rage, but we're going to get our butts out of our seats, you know, and make some noise from that place. And when we can weave love into it, that's when we can create healing. So I think there's beauty to all the emotions and stuff to learn from all the emotions and, and a good thing because we're going to feel all the emotions, you know, if you're like me, you're feeling all of them every day, you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And let, let's talk, go back to anger for one second, because it's a very underrated emotion. Many of us are raised um, with the idea that, you know, there, there, don't express your anger. It's not nice. Certainly for women, it's not ladylike to be angry. And I think that anger can be very, very useful. It's what we do with it. You know, do you wield it as a sword or use it as a fuel source? 
Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And there's, I mean, look around in this world, there's, there's so much to be angry about, you know, there's so much injustice and I don't, I don't see love as this silent force in the face of injustice. I see love as a noisy force. You know, I, my, my love invites me to speak up when I feel that there's, when I'm seeing injustice in the world and when I see people being marginalized, um, you know, and that's, that's a tool of anger. Like you said, it can be this very powerful tool I or fuel. But I think that what happens for some of us, and I know this happens for me in moments too, is we do get lost in the anger. You know, we don't, all we do is rage and there's not really a, a good, clean communication that's ever going to come from rage alone. You know, more has to happen. More has to be a part of it. Because when we're seething in our rage, we're usually not open to hearing the other side. We're usually not open to a communication that leads to some sort of understanding between people. And, and there's really nowhere to go from that place. You know, it's all war then and and as we know war leads to to more war and it doesn't lead to peace and healing it can't yeah and, and, and the idea that when we are in that rageful place and and often that leads to righteous indignation we become armored up walled off nothing else can get in everything else is impenetrable um it keeps us safe because what's really beneath that is grief and, and loss yes. And, and, yes. and and sadness that um, we're not generally taught how to contain very well. You know, there's nobody teaching, you know, loss 101 in elementary school. No, you're absolutely right. And, and there's nobody, I'll tell you, there are a few people suggesting to boys and men especially that it's okay to feel anything but okay. You know, I, 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 we are so conditioned, all of us, I think that if we're to run from the uncomfortable emotions, men a bit more so women tend to be more open to feeling. Um, but, but we live in this crazily addicted and addictive society. We're numbing ourselves and escaping everything that's uncomfortable instead of recognizing that, Sadness is a part of life. Anger is a part of life. Envy, jealousy, all of these emotions that we don't want to feel and we numb ourselves from feeling are a part of life. And all the energy we put into numbing, all that's doing is showing how those emotions are actually in control of us. When we just allow ourselves to feel them and to sit in them and to see that they will move through us, if we can sit inside of them instead of running away from them, um, we're, we empower ourselves, you know, that they don't have control over us in the same way. But we can only learn that if we're not numbing, if we're not escaping, if we're not turning to all the different things we turn to, whether it's alcohol or drugs or social media or binge watching or food or shopping or all these things in, in unhealthy ways. Um, you know, we've got to be re really willing to sit in our feelings, I believe. I agree, because here's the thing. If we're able to sit in the muck and in those dark feelings, it also means that we are are um, broadening our capacity for the lighter feelings, for those um, feelings like love and joy, because they live in the same place in the brain. So if you're cutting yourself off from the dark feelings, those things that are uncomfortable, um, you're also cutting off the ability to feel those other beautiful, delicious emotions that we live for. We actually are, are motivated by. 
A thousand percent, Lisa. That's the thing. We believe that we can be selective with the walls that we create, but that's not how energy works. Exactly what you said. Yeah. And in my experience, and I can't, I don't have science behind this, but my experience has been that there is a disproportion. The light expands disproportionately in a positive way. Like, yes, my dark, when I'm aware of my emotions, I become much more aware of all the darkness that lives inside of me. But the light that grows inside of me feels so much bigger and so much more expansive that it can hold all that pain and all that darkness, you know? Yeah, I I, I do know. I want to say yes, brother, I know. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah, exactly. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we need to like, you know, call like call this the uh, the some like a, the 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 love gospel. I don't know. Yeah, but I like it. <laughs> maybe that's your next book. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in graduate school, I had two professors who were a couple that um taught the spiritual psychology program that I went through. And they said the Holnicks, Dr. Ron and Mary Holnick said, healing is the application of love to the places that hurt. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. And that's what you're talking about, right? Absolutely. And acceptance, you know, just acceptance. We are human beings. We're all struggling. We're all doing our best. Can we accept and love ourselves through it all? You know, ah. That's your next Facebook challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I thought yoga was hard. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what? Acceptance, yoga is probably easier for the naysayers than acceptance, ironically, right? We are out of time. And I want to just send our listeners over to you at www.scottstabile.com, on Twitter at Scott Stabile, and Facebook, Scott Frank Stabile, and Instagrammers, listen up. Scott Stabile. The book we've been talking about today is Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart, published by New World Library. Scott, you've been a delight. Come back and hang out with me in in love. Let's do this again. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Doug Abrams and Scott Stabile, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.